Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Bye, Jove. Welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the 1955 epic Land of the Pharaohs. Now, you might be wondering why I'm talking in such a splendidly British way. Well, put simply, we are looking at an American film here, which is set in Egypt. So, of course, everyone has such a a brilliantly British accent, because, well, of course, this is the way that all Egyptians spoke back in the day. Not only that, but this film also has people from Nubia and Cyprus, but they all talk just like this. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry, I'm not doing the entire episode like that. After all, that might get just a tad annoying, believe it or not. And that's shocking, right? I just kind of wanted to point out how ridiculous it is that these kind of films put on that accent, though. From what I understand, it's because a lot of, like, early stage plays and things like that were done in a British accent and it's kind of carried over to films, but I kind of wish it would stop, to be honest, just because half the time the accents are terrible. Like, they're really obviously not British. And then there's there's certain points where it feels like even when it's a British actor, they've been told to act up their Britishness, and that also sounds stupid. Anyway, moving on with the episode. So, as I said, we are looking at Land of the Pharaohs from 1955. Um, First things first, I would like to thank Lee Baker for suggesting this film. It's one that I remember watching about 15 years ago, I think it was. And back then, I do seem to remember, you know, thinking it was all right. So it was quite interesting to see how the film held up. I want to just say as well, there's absolutely no way that I am going to be able to cover this film in just one episode, so I've had to split it into two. Unlike my episodes on, like, say, The Mummy 1999 or The Mummy Returns, I'm doing it in a little bit of a different way, just because I feel like when it comes to sort of the review section in the first part of those ones... It was always a bit rushed and it never quite worked because it was just based on the first half of the film. 
So instead, for this first episode, I'm just going to look over some of the background information for the film, and then about half of the historical accuracy. For the second episode, I'm going to finish off that historical accuracy section, and then review the film in its entirety, and just rate it out of 10. But before that, traditions are traditions, and we must have our dramatic intro. Right. You are a princess of Cyprus, sent to Egypt in order to save your land from having to pay extortionate tribute. To do so, you offer to become one of the pharaoh's wives. At first, Khufu, the pharaoh, is furious and refuses. But eventually, through much hardship, you persuade him to accept. However... Not only will you never forgive his cruelty, but through a mixture of politics, betrayal and murder, you will increase your influence as you try to become his principal wife. However, not only do you want power, you want to rule in the land of the pharaohs. So, this film cost about $2.9 million to make, which today would be about $33 million after inflation. So, we're not talking about the biggest budget film here. After all, The Ten Commandments, which was released just a year after this, cost, I think, about four times that. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's fair to say that The Ten Commandments was twice the length of this film. But even so, it does show that this one didn't have necessarily the biggest budget. It's not tiny either, by any means, but it's just not the biggest. Either way, unfortunately, it did fail to make back that money as it only raised about $2.7 at the box office. This has largely been put down to the fact that, outside of Dewey Martin, who played the pharaoh, Khufu, in the film, and Sidney Chaplin, who plays the part of the slave, Center, there were very few American actors in this film. Instead, as well as the Italian-born actor Louisa Bonney and Kermia, who was of French-Arabian descent and played the kind of principal wife in the film, we also had a lot of British stars such as Jack Hawkins, uh, James Robertson Justice, James Hayter, as well as Joan Collins, who plays Princess Nelifa, who's sort of one of the main characters in the film. Unfortunately, though, none of these stars were really that big in America, and so they weren't really a draw. However, this did not mean that the film lacked ambition, and in fact, the number of extras in this film is nothing short of staggering. For every day of the film's 50-plus day shooting schedule, there were between 3 and 10,000 extras, and a large number of these extras were made up of the Egyptian army supplied by the Egyptian government themselves. Kind of a little ironic considering that the film was never released in Egypt in any major capacity. I did even see some claims whilst researching this that the film was outright banned in Egypt due to historical inaccuracy 
And even one claimed that it was not distributed due to racism, as one of the cast members looked a bit Jewish. I will stress, however, I was unable to find this information outside of IMDb, Wikipedia, and one mention from the Los Angeles Times from 1955. So, I would take that claim with a pinch of salt. Especially as it does need to be bared in mind that the film was always intended for an American audience, not an Egyptian one. Though, by the same token, it is fair to say that Egypt and Israel haven't always had the best relationship, unfortunately. In terms of the filming, it took place in both Egypt and Italy. So in Italy, it took place at Titanus Studios, and in Egypt, a large part of the filming took place at the Limestone Quarry in Tura. And there was also a lot of filming that took place at a granite quarry at Aswan, about 860 kilometres to the south of Cairo. Anyway, I think that about brings an end to the background information part of the episode. So let's move on to the historical accuracy. So as I just stated, we've now arrived at the historical accuracy section of this episode. And basically here, as usual, I'm just going to go over the film, roughly sort of the first half, and just look at what's accurate and what's not. Very early on in the film, we see Khufu, the pharaoh, returning with his army after conquering a foreign land. So let's start with Khufu. He was indeed a real king in Egypt, and it's probably worth noting that around this time, they would have been called kings, not pharaohs. The word pharaoh didn't really come around until about the New Kingdom, so about a thousand years later. But as stated, Khufu was a real king, and in fact, the Great Pyramid of Giza, easily the most famous of all of the pyramids, was built for him. In general, although there is much debate over the length of his reign, ranging anywhere from 26 years to the far less likely 63 years, uh, this second option was suggested by the Ptolemaic priest Manetho, who wrote the first full history of Egypt. However, we do know that he was the second pharaoh of the 4th dynasty, so the 4th dynasty lasted roughly from about... 2600 BC until about 2500 BC, so roughly about a hundred years, give or take. Again, you do see a lot of like statements that it started in, I don't know, like 2613 BC and things like that. Those dates may possibly be correct, but realistically, we can't know for certain where we're going this far back, which is typically why I don't tend to give exact dates when we're talking this far back in history. Anyway, moving on. In this scene, he is marching back into his capital with what looks like a fully professional army. The first professional army of this kind in ancient Egypt did not come around until about the 18th dynasty. This was roughly about a thousand years after the death of Khufu, so it's fair to say that it's not entirely accurate. Instead, during the time of Khufu, conscription from the public would have been used for campaigns. In the film, we see a procession coming into the city, and here we have people playing drums and trumpets. First things first, drums absolutely existed this far back in ancient Egypt. However, trumpets were not really a thing until the New Kingdom, so once again, about a thousand years later in the 18th dynasty. The type of trumpet shown in the film is also far too long. 
in reality, not only would they have been shorter, but they were also more used in war for giving orders, often for summoning troops. On the upside, some of the weapons in this procession are a little more accurate. For a start, they are holding spears. Spears absolutely existed at this time in Egyptian history, and in fact, they're some of the oldest types of weapons full stop. Further, the blades at the end of the spears here are leaf-shaped, which is correct for ancient Egypt. Unfortunately, the, the quality of the film made it a little bit hard to see other details in the spears. But during the Old Kingdom, when this film was set, spears typically consisted of a copper or flint top that was attached by a tongue to a wooden shaft. During this scene, we also see quite a few shields, and all of these seem to be made of cowhide. Once again, this is accurate. This is what the shield would have been made of at this time. Though, if we are being a bit picky, they would have been a little bit more triangular than the one shown, and maybe a little bit smaller as well. The film also shows a lot of people riding camels. Now we're getting into the area where it's a little less accurate again. In fairness, there is a little bit of evidence for camels around this time period in ancient Egypt, but they would have been few and far between, and they would most certainly have not been domesticated. In fact, camels would not be domesticated until about 500 BC, when they were properly introduced by the Persians. Basically, if we're going to look at this time period-wise, it would be a bit like time travelling back 1,500 years to Anglo-Saxon England and seeing just this random guy riding around in a Nissan Micra. After this, we get our first good look at Khufu. First things first, the crown that Khufu is wearing is clearly supposed to be modelled after the very famous statue of Khufu from Cairo Museum. If you want to see this statue, Literally, just type in Khufu into Google and go to his Wikipedia page. It is the very first image you will see. Unfortunately, this crown is supposed to be the red crown of Lower Egypt, which normally had a point on the back. On the statue of Khufu, that point has broken off and the film has replicated this. So, the crown he is wearing is incorrect. He is literally wearing a broken crown here. Poor Khufu, he's going to be so embarrassed. The film goes on to claim that the pharaoh was a direct descendant of the god Amun. Amun first appears in the pyramid text which come from the 5th dynasty. So again, after the reign of Khufu. Although it is fair to say that he likely was around before this, but we just don't have that evidence anymore. You know, it hasn't survived. At this time, the pharaoh was supposed to be the living manifestation of the god Horus, and around about the time of Khufu, the king also gained the epithet Son of Ra, so Ra's basically the, the sun god. The film then goes on to claim that the pharaoh was the ruler of the entire earth. Now technically, according to Egyptian religion, there is some truth to this. Basically, to explain this in a little more detail, we need to talk about one of the most important concepts in ancient Egypt, which is known as Ma'at. So, Ma'at was basically the very foundation of Egyptian society and religion, and it essentially focused on truth, balance, the natural order of things established by the gods, that, that kind of thing. It is how the universe was supposed to be. 
So in a way, it encompasses everything that is proper, whether it be the sun rising and falling each year, or people living in a proper way, aka going to work, worshipping the gods, serving the king. Basically, it was the idea that everything had its place. And when something was out of place, that meant it was going against Ma'at, and that's when chaos can ensue. According to Ma'at, the pharaoh was technically the king of the entire world. But the Egyptians were also aware that in far-off lands, people were far less likely to obey the pharaoh. The way they explained this was that the further you moved away from Egypt, the more chaotic and against Ma'at things became. I hope this kind of makes sense. It is an incredibly complicated concept, and I certainly don't blame any listener for not fully grasping it. After all, I have studied this concept a fair amount, and even my understanding on it seems to change every time I do. When Khufu goes into his palace for the first time, there is a woman who has a pet parrot there. Parrots did not arrive in Egypt until the Ptolemaic period, which was about 2,300 years after the death of Khufu. They were first introduced from India. One thing I did notice during my watch-through of this film is that not only were most of the priests in the film bald, but they also all, almost without exception, wore leopard skins. First things first, many priests in ancient Egypt did indeed shave all of the hair from their bodies and heads. This was usually done in order to remain pure, and when uh, priests entered tombs and temples, especially the inner sanctums of temples, very often they would have to bathe before going in as well, and that was also to remain pure. In fact, the main type of priest to shave all of their hair off were called wab priests, and wab is literally the ancient Egyptian word for pure. <sighs> My goodness, I don't think I've ever said pure this many times in such a short space of time. In terms of the leopard skin, usually it was only the Sem priest who would wear a leopard skin. Sem priests played an important part in Egyptian funerals, and in general the ritual known as the opening of the mouth ceremony. Although a gross oversimplification, the general idea of this ceremony was for different parts of the body of the deceased to be touched with various instruments, whilst the priest said certain phrases. For instance, they might touch the eyes of the deceased and say, Your eyes are given to you so that you may see. And then, basically, it was believed that the, the deceased would be able to see in the afterlife. Or they might touch the deceased's ears, for example, and say, Your ears are given to you so that you may hear then it was believed that that sense was given back to the deceased in the afterlife when they awakened. They would do this to each part of the deceased's body in order to reanimate them in the next life. At one point in the film, a priest is standing in the courtyard of a temple. In front of him are all of the dead soldiers who died in battle. He claims that they have given up their earthly lives, he then gestures to some grand statues of the gods, and these statues talk in booming voices to the crowds. I shall talk a little bit about the ancient Egyptian afterlife later, but first I just want to go over the idea of talking statues. In fairness, although theatre had not yet been invented, Egyptian religion was very theatrical in nature and did rely on grand displays and performances. However, when it came to statues, shockingly, they could not talk. 
nor did people pretend that they could, or at least not in the way shown in the film. In fairness, there were inscriptions on many statues that did encourage people to come and communicate with them. So, in this regard, I suppose it could be said that statues encouraged conversation. However, typically, the statue then took the form of a listener. Statues of gods as well as deceased individuals were believed to house part of a person or god's soul, which was known as the car. I've spoken about the car a fair amount on this podcast, but it was seen as their double or the very essence of the individual. This meant that people could not just talk to these statues, but they could also give offerings to them. Such statues do seem to be around in the Old Kingdom, but they also seem to grow in importance and number as time goes on. Interestingly, during the Old Kingdom, most of the inscriptions that relate to this talk solely about the king communicating with the gods through these statues. You don't really get examples of elite individuals, say, or, you know, the general public communicating with them. This is actually really consistent with how ancient Egyptian religion seems to have worked around this time. During the Old Kingdom, or at least before the Fifth Dynasty, where there do seem to be some changes, not only was it only the pharaoh who seemed to be communicating with the statues of gods, but it was also only the pharaoh that seemed to go to the realm of the gods after his death. As for, let's say, elite individuals, they remained on earth within their tombs after death. Basically, whilst the pharaoh went up to join the gods, everyone else remained on the earthly realm after their death. This could even be seen in the way that tombs were laid out. Elite tombs during the early and mid-old kingdom seemed to be mostly located around the pyramids and tombs of kings. The tombs were laid out in a way that gave the impression of houses in a village. They had courtyards and interior rooms, and streets between individual buildings. They were clearly meant to be visited by the deceased's family and friends as well. Further, on the walls were normally scenes of things like farming and hunting and general entertainment. As well as providing the deceased with sustenance, these brought elements of the world of the living into their tombs for them to enjoy. Even the very cemetery itself was sometimes called Newt meaning town, so they were literally a town of the dead. All of this seems to suggest that the elites remained on earth. Meanwhile, the king's tomb was far less domesticated. They were also far more restrictive on who could go in, as essentially the pharaoh was now in the realm of the gods. As mentioned, the elite tombs tended to be located in the proximity of the pharaoh's pyramid, and this is largely because even in death, the king was believed to be an intermediary between the gods and his people. Basically, in life the pharaoh was an intermediary between the gods and his people, and in death he remained so. In fact, at one point in this film, it is claimed that the king was a living god, and in a way this is true. The king at this time was seen as the living manifestation of Horus, However, it was still accepted that this was Horus in a mortal body. It was actually this mixture of divinity and mortality that made up the very essence of Egyptian kingship. Moving on, about 20 minutes into the film, we come to a scene where Khufu is picking the layout and general building of his pyramid. First and foremost, a small nitpick I suppose, but 
Khufu is made out to have been on the throne for many years by this point. Realistically, he would have started building his tomb very soon after coming to the throne. It would, after all, take quite a few years to build. And so it's not really something you can dilly-dally about. One humorous part of this scene, and I can only imagine it was added deliberately as a little bit of a, a wink if you like, is that the third design he rejects is actually the layout of his real-life pyramid. I will admit, this did make me chuckle. All of the other designs talk about large, maze-like corridors. In all honesty, the pyramids did not really have this. For instance, the Great Pyramid, you know, Khufu's real pyramid, instead had three main chambers. You had the subterranean chamber, which was believed to have been built in case Khufu died before the pyramid was completed. The Queen's Chamber, which is now believed to have been a chapel of some kind. And finally, the King's Burial Chamber. So we're hardly talking about an elaborate labyrinth here. This is not to say that, you know, the pyramids didn't have any defences, of course. For instance, doorways were often blocked off by what were known as plug stones, and there were also portcullis slabs which would slide down over doorways when the lint was removed from beneath them. Very often, both these plug stones and portcullis stones were disguised to make them look like the corridor had come to a dead end. Also, the very idea of the pyramid itself was partly formed as a form of protection. It is, after all, a huge block of solid stone, which made it incredibly hard to penetrate into. You know, other than, say, by going through the actual entrance, which for the most part was also hidden. Therefore, it's fair to say that at this point the film isn't exactly accurate. We've had Khufu wearing a broken crown, a professional army during the Old Kingdom, and talking statues. However, the film does also specify that the king would have been the ruler of the entire world, and there is some truth to this. Further, some of the weapons shown do have some accuracy to them. So, for instance, the spears have leaf-shaped blades on the top, and the shields are made of cowhide. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have, why not consider liking and subscribing? And join me next time, where we shall continue to look at the historical accuracy of Land of the Pharaohs, and also review it. I hope you all have a really good week, and see you then. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.